Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Could you give me some water? I did, you know, that classic thing where you get a drink and then when you're waiting for a meal at a restaurant and then you drink it before it comes. Um, kind of similar situation. The, I thought the worship was so epic. And oh, but my name's Sam, by the way. Uh, I am the student worker here at Ivy. I go to the academy site. Um, I love Ivy. I became a Christian at Ivy. Um, I've really just been on the journey of working out who God is at Ivy. And, you know, I pray that this is the same journey for you as well. And, and we were in worship. I just had an image of really Andy and the band just leading us into the throne room of God. And I just saw us, we're sitting at his feet, and I just really felt like God's going to speak to us now. And I want to set that expectation that God is, he wants to tell us some things about himself this evening, and he's going to do that. So are we ready for that? Come on. Um, Let me pray to start. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us? Do you reveal to us who you are, what you're like? God, we want to pray that prayer that Moses prayed. Would you show us your glory? Come now. Amen. So I want to start by watching uh, a video, um, which I absolutely love, and I I will explain what it's about afterwards. So uh, if you would like to... I love that so much. Oh, it brings me so much joy. Um, that for me is kind of a silly picture, but really um, I think it expresses a bit of the heart of what I want to talk about today. And that is that when we see what God is like and when we, we're basically called to, look, to live that out and show that to the people around us. So we see what the Father does and we lift that out. I'll get to on that in a little bit. But does anyone remember the TV show You Are What You Eat? Well... I have a theory that you are what you worship, or at least what you worship determines the way you live, but that's not quite as catchy, so don't really say that. Old school theologian A.W. Tozer, he has this great quote, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For me, that puts a massive emphasis on the importance of getting the right perspective on God. As Christians, we see the call throughout the Bible again and again to be like Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians and us to imitate me as I imitate Christ. We also know that Jesus reveals to us what the Father is like. There's a number of verses about that. So how do these two statements link? Well, we're called to be like Christ so that the world may know the Father through us. And that's a big commission. And that brings me back to the video. This is our calling as Christians, to be like the Father so the world may know of his great love for them. But here's what I want to focus on today, and it's what do we think we're imitating? What is God like? And I guess the way that you answer that question, ultimately, that will define the way you live as a Christian. Quick example of that in my life, I used to think that God was an angry, quick-tempered deity, and I was living life like I was on eggshells. Every time I messed up, I'd kind of cower away at a bit of a distance and really get as far away from God as I could. 
I guess as a result, when you're, when you're out and you're speaking to people about God, you're inviting them into some kind of, it's like a behavioral management, and you call it Christianity. And, you know, that may sound familiar to some people, but for me, that was how I thought about God for the longest time. And it's not right. So I wanted to touch on this small topic. Um, but I'm believing that there is a word in this for everyone here. So for some, this would be Christianity 101. Like we know what God is like, and, you know, that's fine. But I think we're, none of us here are really fully nailing, living it out, and we can all learn to reflect God more closely. So I'm hoping that you'll be open to the challenge that's presented here, and for those of you who this is new and you haven't heard this before, get ready, because God is just so good. He's amazing. So I just want to preface by saying that it's important to be open to what God's saying, but only he can reveal what he is like, really. We can see it in the Bible, and we'll get into that. But it's his spirit that brings revelation. You know, that's why we pray at the start um, for God to come and pour out his spirit. God has been speaking to me a lot about this, so I thought I'd share some thoughts on it with you. But you know, I'd, I'm still working this out for myself. And you know, Here's something to think about. The first challenge I want to pose to you is, if God is in agreement with all your political, philosophical, and cultural standpoints, chances are you have a skewed theology of who God is. We have this tendency to make God into our own image, when of course it's really the other way around. So watch out for that, and let it challenge you as we dig deeper into what God says about himself. So very quickly with someone near you, off the top of your head, just share as many words in 30 seconds as you can to describe God with each other. Does that make sense? As many words as you can to describe God, I'll give you 30 seconds. Go. I didn't actually time it, so I have no idea if that was 30 seconds. <laughs> but one, one that comes up for me quite a lot, uh, how many of you said something like omniscient, omnipotent, show of hands, did anyone say that? Okay, well, um, I often go to those things, and I remember doing religious studies, and you know, those are the, like the primary ways that, that we used to describe God. It was like those three things, those big ones. Very long words, I didn't really understand them. But I feel like... <laughs> The features of who God is, they're not aspects of his character. I think about if someone asked me to, um, about a close relative or a partner of mine, and I said, well, they're five foot nine, they wear size six shoes, they have dark hair. You'd feel a bit like, but what are they like? You know, what, what do they care about? Are they funny? Are they kind? You know, that sort of stuff. And now, you know, maybe that's a bit of a flippant example, but I am guilty so often of robbing God of the personal nature that he really wants to convey to me and to other people. And which brings us to our passage. So I think the slide kind of made a little, I don't know, just didn't work. But we're going to read Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. So if you've got a Bible with you um, or you've got a screen, then that would be great because I don't know if it's going to come up. But I'll just give you a moment to find that. Once you've got it up, keep it up as well, because we're going to keep referring back to it. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. I just want to say, 
in your Bibles it may say the Lord, I'm going to replace it with Yahweh, and I'm going to explain why in a minute. So, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Starts off really nice and then gets a little bit... Going to breeze over the first part about God coming down from the cloud and standing there with Moses. I feel like that's a talk in itself and it's completely mental and I really can't get my head around that. But in previous chapters, Moses asked, he, he prayed that same prayer we prayed, which was, show us, show me your glory. So here God is. He proclaims his name. God describes himself. And this passage is so important that it became the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. This is the foundation for the theology of how basically anyone who was anyone in the Bible saw God. Constant references, passages, got Nehemiah, Jonah, Isaiah, Joel, the Psalms, Micah, John. Honestly, the list just goes on. I'm pretty sure it's probably in every book. Um, I had no idea, but you'll, you'll find aspects of these two verses everywhere. So we're going to break this down bit by bit. Hopefully we're going to get a bit of a better picture of who God says he is. There's obviously unbelievable depth to this, um, and we're only really going to scratch the surface in a way. But we're going to bust some myths about God, and hopefully it will get you hungry to pray and ask God to reveal more in the future in your own time. Sound good? Great. So first thing, he has a name. He's going, oh, damn, I thought it was going to work. Names were important in ancient Hebrew. They told a lot about a person. In Exodus 3, verse 13, Moses asks God, what is his name? Or in the Hebrew, does anyone speak ancient Hebrew here? Just, so no one's going to pull me off my pronunciation of this. Ma-shemo, that'll do. Ma-shemo, which, is, which isn't the standard way of asking someone's name. It's more like saying, what is the meaning or significance of your name? What makes you, you? He's asking about character. Moses wants to know more than just the... I am the God your fathers worshipped answer that God has given in the past. That's not going to get the people on board. So God replies, I am who I am, or I am. Meaning, whatever God is like, he is and will always be that way. I don't know if we're going through a hard time right now, but you know, one thing to ask ourselves is, where have we seen a characteristic of God displayed in the past that we can depend on now? God's name is I am. He is unchanging in nature. And so that in itself is something to hold on to. So first myth to bust here is that God does not change in character day to day. Old Testament to New Testament, I feel like we hear that a lot. God does not change. His very name dictates that. And the Hebrews got scared to use the name Yahweh because of the commandment, thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. So they started calling him the Lord um, or Adonai instead. And we translate Yahweh as the Lord in the Bible, hence why you wouldn't have seen Yahweh in your copies unless you did. I feel this gives God a title and not a name. It strips away the intimacy. Again, it's that intimacy away from the original tent, intent. But when we look at Jesus, he takes it a step further and he says, call him Father. I love that. But what does God having a name mean? Well, it tells us Yahweh is a relational being, not a distant energy force, despite what people might tell you. Yahweh has a name and a character 
This means we can talk to him as a friend and he responds. He is open to dialogue. He has emotions. There's countless times in the Bible that it says that God changes his mind because Moses or Abraham, they, they pray and they, they ask him to and he does. This all means that prayer is far less ritualistic than perhaps we make it. I mean, when we look at the Psalms of Lament, the writers are they're flirting with like blasphemy and just desperate faith. And God just seems to encourage it. So God giving us his name means we're to approach him as a friend. And it means our prayers are part of a conversation. But not just that, they're part of a partnership with God. This will help shape the rest of the characteristics we're going to hear about. They are steadfast, but also God is intimate and personal. Therefore, the things God displays, we can live them out too, with a lot of his help. So, gets on to the first bit of the description. It says, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious. Now, order matters in Hebrew text. So, in essence, when God says this, he says, these are the two most important things I want you to know about myself. And the Hebrew word for compassion is rahum. I think, Rahum. It is used in other places as well. We see it again when Solomon's about to uh, cut that child in half and the real mother is deeply moved by her Rahum for the child. It's basically, the way to describe it is, is how that parent feels about their infant child when a child is first born and you're just kind of enamored with it. That's how God feels. That's how that word compassionate is, is translated. I say infant child because kids get more annoying as they grow up, so. Um, whatever your family situation was, if you're a parent, you may get this, or maybe if you're like me and you're on a journey of just working it out, then that's fine. But God reveals his most important and default, default disposition towards us as a compassion or mercy, like that of a perfect parent towards their newborn child. So that's God's go-to emotion towards us. And the next word, gracious, is how he acts. He rescues us when we need help, even when we don't necessarily deserve it. He shows us kindness. So the next myth to bust is, God is not just nice to the people who follow him and love him. He's looking for opportunity to bless and be gracious towards everyone because he feels rahum when he looks at everyone. Now this sounds all nice and fluffy, but when we look at the story of Jonah, at the end of the story, God sees the repentance of the Ninevites and shows mercy and doesn't destroy them, much to the annoyance of Jonah. And so that, that can be a hard thing because he even responds to our enemies or the prayers of people who've done a lot wrong. Fortunately, that does include us. So we come back to that I am who I am name. If God is gracious and compassionate, then that has to extend to those who hurt us as well, providing the repentance is there, of course. Now saying that, he is just and does get angry and we'll get to that in a bit. But his mercy is for all without bias, and, his, and it is his baseline emotion towards us and everyone. We see it loads with Jesus that he has mercy on people and commands us not just to love our enemies, but to pray for them too. So I wanna, I'm going to, on each one of these um, different points, I'm just going to ask two questions. It's always going to be the same. Do you know this to be true about God? And that's the first one. Do you know him to be compassionate and gracious? to everyone, to you. And the second one is, how are you reflecting that in your own life? How are you applying that? When you see God and he says, be like me, how are you living that out? We'll get to the second point. So it comes forward, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger. And this is one really important thing I want you to take away from this evening. It, slow to anger in Hebrew is erek apayim, which means long in nostrils. Which I thought was so brilliant. <laughs> and it's, I think it's so funny, but it's used to describe that, that long inhale, that long intake of breath through your nostrils when you're trying to, you know, keep yourself composed, so to speak. Uh, when you want to calm down and you know the complete opposite of when you're absolutely going in on someone offloading and your nostrils are out you know the same words are used in proverbs 14 whoever is slow to anger has great understanding but one who is quick-tempered displays folly it's a picture of control over feelings of frustration and anger so the next myth to bust is god isn't waiting for you or anyone else to mess up so he can slap your wrist he doesn't have a temper. He's incredibly and sometimes frustratingly patient with people. However, he does get angry. He is wrathful, and we hear about it a fair bit in the Bible. But what is that wrath? I just want to touch on this, really. John Stott defined it as his steady, unrelenting, uncompromising antagonism. He's coming up against evil in all its forms. God hates evil. Not people, but the evil that they do. That's what he pours his wrath out on. His anger is different to ours. It doesn't come from a, like a deflated ego when someone's rude to us or rude to him. It doesn't seek revenge like we do. It just seeks justice. And they're very different things. You know, in the example of Nineveh, he spares them in the story of Jonah because they repented. So he changes his mind. However, later in the book of Nahum, they've gone too far and they've basically enslaved like 10 out of 12 of Israel's tribes. So he punishes them big time because they don't repent. And it seems that God is gracious, merciful, and slow to anger, but when sin crosses a threshold, the only proper response is, is anger, because God hates injustice. You know, we see this with Jesus as well. He was very slow to anger, but, you know, in the face of great injustice, we, we know the passage where he goes into the temple and he flips the tables and he, he gets uh, the whip and drives people out because these money changes there, making it hard for people to worship, hard for people to, to bring their sacrifice and to atone for their sins. So how does this affect the way we act? We must also share the same anger and justice. But that doesn't mean flipping our lids anytime anyone says anything that's a bit rude or insensitive. Yahweh's anger is born out of love. And when you see someone you love in pain, it should make you angry. That's why love is an attribute of Yahweh. We say all the time, God is love. But I've never heard anyone say God is wrath. Because wrath is just his response to evil. That is not, it's not who he is. It's not like the same thing as love. God is not a permissive parent who turns a blind eye to evil and sin, nor is he an angry God ready to snap. He's compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. So, do you know this to be true about God? That he is patient with you, but hates evil. How are you reflecting that in your own life? Okay, so the next one. Do you still have the things up? The verses up? You to say it with me. We'll go from Yahweh, Yahweh. And we'll go to faithfulness. Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Great, nailed it. So firstly, love in Hebrew is uh, chesed, which translated to English means a number of things, but not love as we know it today. It kind of means something more like steadfast love, unfailing love, covenant loyalty, and faithfulness. 
is originally emet, which trans literally translates to truth or trustworthy. It's all wrapped up with this idea of reliability, God's reliability. And these words come together to tell us about God's committed loyalty and love for his people, no matter the cost. And it can be really hard to reconcile that with life, you know, because life is hard. And so what do we make of this statement that God says about himself? And the answer really is found in this word covenant. And covenant is, it's just a combo of a promise and like a legal contract, you know, roughly speaking. And I think the closest thing we have to that now really is, is marriage. And, you know, looking to the covenants in the, in the Bible that God makes with his people, it displays his character so well. The covenant to bless the whole world through Abraham is not an easy road for Abraham. And God's faithfulness in that doesn't mean an easy ride. But ultimately, he kept the covenant even to the point of Jesus dying on the cross. That's the kind of love and faithfulness that God's talking about here. Rugged, messy, but committed even when we are not. Now, have you seen that in your life? When we turn our back on God, but he still leads us and he still sticks with us. Have you seen that in your life? Jesus came to do what Abraham and Israel never could in that covenant. He was Yahweh embodied, but also Israel, the people of God, represented. And we can keep our end of the covenant, so Jesus shows up and brings the blessing on our behalf. Yahweh made a promise, and when Israel failed, Yahweh was still faithful. Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So here's the next myth. God's covenant with us is not the promise of health and wealth. His love and faithfulness doesn't mean we get an easy ride through life. He promises to bless the world through his people. And not just that, his promise is him, himself. We get him forever, and he will always be with us. So our hope is that no matter what happens to us, Jesus is back from the dead, and that means anything is possible. God is bigger than evil and stronger than death. God is faithful to his promises. Do you know that to be true about God? How are you reflecting that in your own life? And the final section, and this, is a, this can be a hard one to swallow, but Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's kind of a, it's kind of a messed up ending to a pretty dreamy description so far. But I just want to start, really just break it down from the start. And he is maintaining love to the thousands. The idea here is that his hesed isn't limited to a favored few people. It is, really is for everyone. He's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Well, what does he forgive? Well, these three words he just used to describe just the breadth of human depravity, of how far we've gone. He forgives sins of all shapes and sizes. I also like that God is, he doesn't, uh, it's not just forgives, but he's like forgiving. It's like forgiveness is inherent in God's character. He doesn't forgive reluctantly, but he forgives eagerly. He's looking to forgive because forgiveness brings wholeness and healing, and that's what Yahweh is all about. However, uh oh, he will punish the guilty. And I, I think I struggle with this for a little bit. 
and then uh, I had a, there was an image that really helped me kind of get my head around this, and it was a, it was a set of scales, and really this is the way I see it. Yahweh's working with a set of scales, and on one side we have mercy, and on the other side we have justice. Both are aspects of his character. But it's an uneven set of scales. You imagine justice on this side, mercy here, it's like that. We see mercy winning out on a number of occasions. Even in this verse, we see the difference in the numbers. It says, he is showing love, maintaining love to the thousands, but punishing to the third and fourth generation. I think just, I mean, that's quite a, it's quite a basic thing, but really it's just like the difference in numbers alone tells you how lean God is towards mercy. There is a clear imbalance. Reminder of the verse, it just talks about mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy does win out every time. God does not ignore our sin, and the punishment we receive for sin um, without repentance is that sin will run its course, and eventually it will destroy us. However, he is highly sensitive to a change of direction. We see it time and time again in the Bible and in our own lives. When we repent, he responds with mercy, even though justice would say no. But if we don't, then he will only wait for so long before he puts our sinful rampage to a stop, which in itself is a kind of mercy, I would argue. Yahweh is in the business of blotting out all evil in the world, so he will not turn away from it. So the myth to bust here is, God doesn't punish sin anymore because of Jesus. Well, he does. Because he's treading a line of mercy and justice, he will show either or both, depending on our attitude towards sin. But what about the punishing kids bit? Well, that doesn't mean if your granddad sins, then God punishes the grandkids. It's essentially saying that sin has implications that permeate through generations if it's undealt with. I think about the example of uh, like a divorce. If the parents suffer a divorce, then the child also suffers a divorce. And that has implications in the way the child lives their life, and that will keep going, and it will keep going until God intervenes, until people realign themselves with what God's got for them. So God has this predicament to be true to both aspects of his character, to be merciful and just. And the way that God solves the problem of sin while staying true to these two things is in Jesus. In the cross, we sin, Jesus dies. We get to live in relationship with God. And the, the cross isn't the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son, not in my opinion anyway. For me, it's the Father and the Son working together in anger at the evil and sin in the world. They bring justice and mercy together to absorb all the world's sin and evil in Jesus' death. And they bring about the release of all God's life in the resurrection. The good news and bad news is that God deals with our sin one way or another. It's good because... If we're aware and we want to see the power it has over us broken, we can repent and Jesus can bring freedom and a change of direction. It's bad because it usually involves vulnerability, admitting we're wrong, confession, and we don't like that. But we can be confident looking at the character of God that we are and will be forgiven. And so I just kind of just want to wrap up with a couple of verses from Joel. Joel verse 2, 12 to 14. It says, When we abandon ourselves back to God in desperation for freedom, from our sin, then who knows? God may not only forgive us, but bless us. So do you know this to be true about God? 
that he is forgiving. That he chooses mercy over justice and that he chose mercy over justice on the cross for you, for everyone. How are you reflecting that in your own life? Are you choosing mercy? I think it'd be great to have the band come up, if that's okay. Yeah, and what Yahweh wants is a living, breathing people to put his name on display. To show the world what he is like, not only by what we say, but by how we live. But we need to commit to getting to know his character first. And so we pray the prayer Moses prayed again and again. God, would you show us your glory? I think when I get into this and you know, really just researching about the different characteristics of God, it just made me want to worship. And I think that's the appropriate response. Um, so I'd love it if you could stand with me, if you're able. And just before we go into worship, I'd love it if you could close your eyes and I'm going to pray a prayer and it'd be great if you could just pray. I'll say a couple of words and then if you just repeat them back, if you want to pray this prayer as well. So, Yahweh, you are unchanging. You are compassionate and gracious loving and faithful, patient and just. I want to commit my life to be a reflection of you so the world may know who you are and what you are like. Reveal to me more and more who you are and give me courage to be like you no matter the cost. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.